Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. <clears throat> From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city. A certain man, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Then they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answers, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This, is the very, this very night you will, fall, you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the, shep the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked. He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away for a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
We have been working through Matthew's Gospel for almost two years now, on and off. That's a long time, isn't it? Uh, But there's a lot in Matthew's Gospel. As we've been working through Matthew's Gospel, we've learnt about how very special Jesus is. We learned about his birth. Uh, We've learnt about his teaching. We've learnt about uh, the miracles which Jesus performed. We've learnt about the extraordinary claims that Jesus made as to who he is and uh, why he came. In 25 chapters, Matthew has given us a very broad sketch of the life of Jesus. But from chapter 26 onwards, there is a change of pace, or uh, shall I say, there is a change really in intensity. Because having spent 25 chapters uh, of telling us about Jesus' life so far, we now have three chapters which focus on the details of only one week of Jesus' life. The last week uh, concluding with his resurrection from the dead. This is the climax. This is the point to which the 25 chapters of Matthew have been heading. And so we're going to take probably four weeks to deal with this one week of Jesus' life. Because now we have come to the heart of the message of the Bible. Way back when we started Matthew's Gospel in chapter 21, there was an angel of the Lord who appeared to Joseph and he said that the baby whom Mary was carrying in her womb was to be called Jesus, Yeshua, for he would save his people that he would save his people from their sins. And so the gospel has started off with this declaration of the purpose of Jesus to be a saviour. But what does this mean? What kind of saviour would he be? Many, many ordinary Jews were deeply impressed by Jesus They were impressed by his teaching. They were mightily impressed by the extraordinary miracles which he performed. They were impressed by his defiance, the way that he exposed and stood up to the ungodly authorities who ruled at the time. Yet what they saw in Jesus was a political saviour a political messiah. They saw Jesus certainly as being the one uh, whom the Old Testament had spoken of. They saw him, however, as being the saviour who would rescue his people from the occupation of the Romans and who would establish uh, the rule of God's kingdom over the world from Jerusalem. Now think back to chapter 21. In chapter 21, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he did so to a hero's welcome. 
As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfilment of Zechariah chapter 9, the people gathered around and they praised him, they worshipped him, they honoured him, they shouted scripture at Jesus, declaring him to be the messianic son of David in fulfilment of scripture that he was the one who had come to establish God's kingdom. The religious leaders were not thrilled to see him, but ordinary people looked forward with great anticipation as to what would happen now. But if you open your Bibles to Matthew 26, you will see that the mood is now far more sombre. Because in stark contrast to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem only a few days earlier, now it would appear that Jesus' world is crumbling. There is one word which keeps on appearing uh, throughout Matthew 26. Uh, it is, of course, a Greek word. It is a Greek, it is a word which in the first century had a number of different meanings. It could be translated to refer to a person being brought before a court. Uh, it could be translated to refer to a person being handed over. It could also refer to an act, an awful act of betrayal, whereby a good, innocent man would be destroyed. And in Matthew 26, that word is used ten times. In the NIV, it is translated three times as to hand over. It is translated seven times as to betray. But it is the same word in the original. Over 25 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we have seen that Jesus has faced much opposition. We saw it right at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel when he was opposed uh, by King Herod. We've seen it uh, throughout the Gospel that he has been opposed by the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, the, uh, the, the teachers of the law. So far, the opposition has been from the outside. But now, in a dramatic twist, the opposition comes from within. Jesus would be betrayed by one who claimed to be his friend, by one whom had been with him for three years, by one who was declared to be a disciple. Now, if you were reading Matthew chapter 26 for the first time, you may well conclude that things have gone now horribly wrong for Jesus. Uh, let's look uh, more closely to see why. Firstly, there is the betrayal. If you have a look at verses 14 through to 16, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests and asked this question. He said, what are you willing to give me if I should 
hand him over to you. There is that word, to hand over. Now, we are not told precisely why Judas did this, what motivated him apart from the fact that he was an evil man. Some speculate that uh, Judas had connections with one of the insurrectionist groups and that perhaps it was his uh, disappointment that uh, Jesus was not leading the kind of revolution that some may have anticipated, a political, military uprising. But you remember back to last week. Last week, when a lady came to Jesus and poured over him an alabaster jar of perfume, uh, equivalent in value to one year's wages for a labourer, that the disciples complained to Jesus, or they complained to the lady. They complained that that money could have been used to feed the poor. In John chapter 12, when John recounts this story, he identifies the name of the disciple who made the complaint. It was Judas Iscariot. And John goes on to add his own comment to that incident. And he says this, and I quote from John chapter 12, verse 6, he said, Judas did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. So there you go. Judas was an embezzler. Judas had his hand in the till. It was in Judas's best interest for them to have sold that perfume and kept that money to give to the poor. So maybe it was the money that motivated Jesus. Yet let me say this, uh, 30 pieces of silver was a paltry amount. Uh, in Exodus chapter 21, in the law of Moses, if you were a farmer who owned a bull and your bull attacked somebody else's slave and gored that slave to death, then you had to pay recompense to the owner of the slave. What was the value of a slave? 30 pieces of silver. And that was the value that was placed on the head of Jesus. It was a paltry amount, but it was enough for Judas. And so there is the betrayal. Secondly, there is also Jesus' knowledge of the future desertion. In verses 31 through to 35, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus told the other disciples that they would turn their backs on him. Now, Peter, of course, being Peter, insisted that he would never do that, that uh, he would uh, rather die than uh, turn his back on Jesus. And the other disciples said the same. But Jesus knew that desertion was about to happen. So we have betrayal, we have desertion. And thirdly, in verses 36 through to 46, Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow. Uh, those of you who came on Tuesday night had a great night learning about Israel. Thank you, Mark and Lauren, for sharing us your slides of your trip to Israel and uh, explaining to us the geography of the Bible. One of the things we learnt was about the Garden of Gethsemane. 
uh, Gethsemane uh, is uh, just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Mark and Lauren showed us the slides. And you can see the, the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. And then there's the, uh, the Kidron, uh, which is more of a creek than a river. The Kidron Valley. And on the other side of that uh, is the, the Mount of Olives. And the Garden of Gethsemane was on one of the sides of the Mount, Mount of Olives, or is, or is on that side. Uh, you can go there, you can see it today. Well, Jesus, it's only a short walk from Jerusalem. And so Jesus took his disciples there to pray. And in verse 37, we're told that he took three of the disciples aside and he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is how Jesus was feeling. And so we can see that uh, betrayed by a friend, expecting to be deserted, now overwhelmed with sorrow. This is a stark contrast to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem only a few days earlier. Now, there are some people who say that this last week of Jesus' life, uh, his pre-resurrection life, is just an unfortunate tragedy. They dismiss Jesus. They say that he was a well-meaning young man, and he was young, he was only 33, um, younger than half of us here. He was a young man. And they say that he was well-meaning, but he, to put it bluntly, he simply got in uh, over his head. And now his world has fallen apart. Betrayed by a friend, the powerful elite now have their window of opportunity to pounce, and Jesus knew it, the game was up. An unfortunate tragedy. But throughout this chapter, and indeed throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that nothing could be further from the truth. We see that there is a very different explanation for what is happening. We see that Jesus was not caught by surprise one little bit, that it was all in Scripture. And you see that uh, if you take a look, for example, at verse 24. In verse 24, Jesus says, The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. Or go down to verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written. Uh, Or go over the page to page 50 to verse 54. But how then, asks Jesus, would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Or down to verse 56. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. You see, was this an unfortunate tragedy? No way. The betrayal, the handing over of Jesus was exactly in the plan of God. The prophets of the Old Testament 
had pointed to this particular handing over. Indeed, the whole tenor of the Old Testament was pointing towards this moment, these events. Now, we see it uh, in a couple of different ways. Uh, We see it in one of the um, uh, chief motifs of the Old Testament, and we see it in specific prophecies of the Old Testament. One of the motifs of the Old Testament is that of sacrifice. And we see how these events are fulfilled, uh, the fulfilment of the Old Testament, most profoundly in verses 17 through to 30, when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Next month, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. It's my intention that when we come to that week on the first uh, Sunday of September to come back to this passage and to preach uh, from this passage more expansively so that we can actually develop a uh, a more detailed, uh, a deeper understanding of the Passover and, and why it is that we celebrate it, as we call it, as the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal was an elaborate meal. That is why in verse 19 we see that the disciples had to prepare for it. Jews who were living in Palestine were required to celebrate the Passover within the confines of the city of Jerusalem. And what would happen in basic terms is this, that a family, or in the case of smaller families, a group of families, would take a lamb to the temple courts where the priests would slaughter that lamb as a sacrifice. The blood of that lamb would be poured into basins and those basins would be passed along a line until they got to the altar where the blood would be poured out at the feet of the altar, at the foot of the altar. The meat would then be taken home where it would be roasted and it would be eaten with herbs and with green vegetables. As they ate the lamb, they would sing psalms, some specific psalms which were set aside for the Passover celebration. They would drink wine, actually five cups of wine. Each cup would have a special symbolic significance. We'll talk about that in a few weeks' time. They would eat unleavened bread, like Lebanese-style bread. And the head of the house would explain to any children the meaning of the meal, which, by the way, is why we have children celebrate the Lord's Supper with us in this church. But the meal was all about a lamb, a lamb who was handed over to death. It was about the blood of the lamb which had been poured out on the altar for the forgiveness of sins. 
The first Passover, of course, occurred thousands of years earlier when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. God caused terrible plagues to be inflicted on the Egyptians in order to uh, turn the heart of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh might release God's people from their slavery so that they would be able to enter into the promised land. The last of those plagues was an angel of death who on a particular night swept across the land of Egypt and the firstborn son of every household was killed. But the Israelites had been warned by God. They were to sacrifice a lamb. They were to use the blood of that sacrificed lamb to cover the door frames of their houses so that as the, as the angel of the Lord swept across Egypt, that he would pass over those households whose door frames were covered with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And as a result, God's people were spared from that uh, judgment that took place on that night and they were freed, they were released, allowed to leave Egypt so that they could enter into the promised land which is a, which is a prototype of heaven. And so the Jews celebrated the Passover every year to remember that God is a merciful God who saves his people from slavery and he does so uh, through the handing over of a lamb to death. So that's the background of the Passover. But as they ate the Passover on this occasion, in verses 17 to 29, there was a dramatic twist. There were two dramatic developments. Firstly, let me say this, that when the Jews celebrated the Passover, there were specific words which were traditionally used by the head of the household at various points during the meal. But the words that we see in verse 26 had never been spoken at any Passover by anybody. Three words, four words, this is my body. Again in verse 28, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Poured out like the lamb's blood being poured out at the foot of the altar. Stunning words. The words, my body, my blood. Jesus is saying that he is the sacrificial lamb who would be handed over at the altar. But he knew that he would be handed over through treachery. Have a look at verses 21 to 23 verse 21 and while they were eating he said i tell you the truth one of you will betray me they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other surely not i lord jesus replied the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me now in the passover meal uh, they had a bowl 
which uh, inside the bowl there was um, there was herbs that were mixed with a, a fruit puree, and uh, they would dip their their bread into that bowl as part of the meal. Jesus's point here is that uh, all of the disciples would have dipped their hands into that bowl. Uh, he's not specifically identifying Judas here, although Judas actually is the first one to say, surely not I, Lord. The point that Jesus is making is that the one who would hand him over is on the inside. It is one who has shared in the fellowship, the intimate fellowship of the common bowl at the Passover. The betrayal by Judas would mean that the Passover was fulfilled by Jesus. It was expected. But there are also many specific prophecies that are fulfilled uh, in the betrayal and the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, so many, too many to mention here. And so I point you to uh, one, one Old Testament prophecy which is well known. I wonder if you'll come with me to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, on page 523, Isaiah describes the coming servant of God and we see how that servant is described in verse 3. He's, despi he's, he's described as one who was despised and rejected by men, full of sorrows, familiar with suffering. This is Jesus now in the Garden of Gethsemane, overwhelmed by sorrow. And what would happen to this coming servant? Well, verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Now if you go down to verse 12, the second part of verse 12. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the, for the transgressors. Here we see the sacrificial lamb. Here we see the handing over of one who is innocent for the sake of those who are guilty. Now, next week we will look at the arrest and the trial of Jesus. But I wonder if I could sort of sum up chapter 26 by saying this, that in one sense it is about that word that appears ten times. It is about handing over. At the purely human level, we can see that this handing over is a despicable act of treacherous betrayal by a sinful, evil, wicked human being. That is clear. Years ago I read a book, a missionary book called Peace Child and it uh, told the story of some missionaries who went to a tribe in the highlands of New Guinea and settled in amongst that remote tribe and were befriended 
and befriended that tribe. They made many close friends within that tribe. It was only later that they discovered that uh, amongst, in the culture of that tribe, that betrayal was seen as the highest human quality. That to get close to a person, to become their close friend, to win their trust, and then to butcher them to death was seen as the highest quality that you could aspire towards. And given that many of the tribal people had become close friends of theirs, the missionaries then felt extremely vulnerable. When that tribe heard about Judas, they thought that he was the hero of the Bible. Judas was an evil man who handed over his friend and sold his soul for a mere 30 pieces of silver. But this was not a situation which was out of the control of God. It was not that Jesus' world had fallen apart. Rather, it was because God allowed it to happen. For as Judas was handing Jesus over, at the spiritual level, something far more profound was happening. And that is that our Heavenly Father was handing Jesus over to the altar of the cross as the Passover lamb. Now, when we come to Jesus' death on the cross in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to fill out in greater detail why he died on the cross. Now, let me say that he died to take your punishment for your sin. He died as the Passover lamb so that his blood would pay the debt that you owed to God. He died so that you can be forgiven by God and receive eternal life. He is the Passover lamb. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, the Apostle Paul speaks about how, how incredibly unbelievable the love of God is. How amazing the love of God is. And he reminds us in that passage that God did not spare his one and only son, but rather that he gave him up, that he handed him over for us, for you and for me. So today I want to invite you to respond to the, the handing over that God has done. And I want to invite you to respond by doing some handing over yourself. To hand your life over to God. For some of us, that may mean doing so for the very first time. I don't imagine at any point that in a group this size that we have all turned our lives over to God. And I would hope that uh, people who haven't yet come to that point in their lives would feel happy to be here and to be amongst us, to hear of Jesus and to hear of what he's done 
and to hear of the appropriate response to the handing over of Jesus on the cross. Well, the appropriate response is to hand your life over to God. It means trusting. It means trusting that Jesus indeed was handed over for your sin. It means trusting that he has paid for your sin, however great, however small. Essentially, our sin has got to do with an attitude towards God, an attitude that says, I will run my life my way without you. Well, friends, Jesus was handed over to death because of that. And God invites you to respond by asking God to forgive you and by asking God to take your life into his hands, to hand over your life to God. For when you do that, the sacrifice of Jesus is applied to you personally. His blood is poured out on the altar of the cross for you. Now, we all need to do that. And as people who've perhaps already handed over our lives to God, sometimes for some of us many years ago, this is a challenge which is still there for us today. This is a challenge which we all need to consider. Because of what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he speaks of his own life and his own ongoingness in the Christian life, he says that Jesus gave himself up for us. There it is again. He gave himself up for us so that we will no longer live for ourselves. Now, we could talk in a lot of detail. I could list a whole lot of areas of life where we need to give ourselves up for God. But this is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter, the, the very thing which motivates us is that God has given up his son for you and for me so that Paul can say, we live for him for the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself up for us. He handed himself over so that we can now hand ourselves over to him and live eternally forgiven by our God who loves us. So let's do that. Some for the first time but all of us on an ongoing basis. Not just part of your life, but all of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love in this handing over. Uh, Lord, the despicable act of Judas reminds us of the fallenness of our world and the very need for this handing over to have taken place. We thank you that you did not spare your own, one and only son, 
but that you handed him over to death on a cross, that his blood was poured out at the altar for the forgiveness of many. So we pray for each one of us that in response to your awesome love that we would hand our lives over to you. Father, we pray that it wouldn't just be this day, that it wouldn't just be a small area of our lives, but it would be every day, that it would be the whole of our lives in gratitude for the great love of Jesus. Amen.